everybody. Welcome to the Got Work to Do podcast. How are you? I am absolutely in bliss. <laughs> it's been a while. Um, I've missed you all. It feels like November was months ago, but it was actually like only the other day. So um, we didn't get a chance to do this in November. However, no worries. Not only do you get a chance to do to hear us today, we get to also connect in a couple more days. So you get two Got Work to Do podcasts in November. So I'm very, very excited about that. But first, before we even jump into the future of December, I want to uh, introduce my two guests for today. I'm going to do a brief intro and then I'm going to allow them to do a better intro of themselves so first, we have uh, Natalia Fernandez, who is the Associate Professor, Curator, and Archivist of the Oregon Multicultural Archives and co-founder of the Oregon, excuse me, of the Queer Archives at Oregon State University. Say hello, Natalia. Hello. And then we also have uh, Raven Waldron, who is a second-year Doctor of Pharmacy student here at Oregon State. She is um, co-founder of RAD, which is the Radical and De- Oh Lord, you know I was going to mess this up. <laughs> Radical and dias- dis- diasporic? Diasporic. Diasporic. Oh Lord, I'm going to mess that up. Indigenous Queer and Two Spirit Student Alliance. Raven is giving me all the side eyes I can handle, uh, and she <laughs> continues to serve as a campus leader and activist. And she is an OSU alum. Thank you for the side eyes. Hi, Raven. Hi. That's why we abbreviate it to RAD, because no one can say it. Well, we shouldn't have to. We should learn how to say diasporic. I just said it. Oh, my gosh. Anyways. You just got to not think about it too hard. I just got to not think about it too hard. So I'm going to allow them to give a better introduction. As I said, when um, I sent you these questions, introduce yourself and however you see fit. But if you could, um, you know, mention something that you that a lot of people don't know about you or and it could be deep it could be humorous whatever you want to share Natalia if you wouldn't mind sharing first so about me uh, in my role as a curator and archivist a position which I've had since late 2010 so about nine years now I collaborate with LGBTQIA and communities of color to empower them to preserve share and celebrate their stories all in an effort to document their histories as well as showcasing their perseverance and accomplishments of of all these communities um, in their journey towards social justice. And so my work as an archivist, if you don't know what archivists do, um, I do collection development. I arrange and describe archival collections, instruction, exhibit curation, reference work, um, all types of things that help preserve materials, but then most importantly, making them accessible to people. Um, And my fun fact isn't all that surprising. Um, I love scrapbooking, and not surprisingly, I have a small bookcase filled with scrapbooks, mostly of trips that I've taken, but also whenever I go to a performance arts piece, whether it's musicals or ballets or opera, I like to scrapbook them. So I do it at work, and then I do it at home, too. Very, very cool. Is that, didn't you scrapbook Rocky Horror Picture Show when we went? I did. I kept the, the bag. Yes. And then I cut it out and I put it in my scrapbook. Yes. yes. I feel like I always want to do that. Like I save the tickets and the playbills and then they just sit in a box. Like I got to get them out and scrapbook them. Maybe you should, maybe you should meet up with me sometime. That would be fun. See, now, now we're going to start several podcasts <laughs> just off of that. <laughs> Raven. Yeah. Um, so hi everyone. Um, I'm Raven. I, as you were saying, I'm a I'm a second year graduate student at OSU. Um, one of the like things that's so wild to think about. I've been at OSU for seven years now. Um, started in 2013, and um, as Brandy likes to likes to talk about, I've in, been involved in everything in the time I've been here. Uh, I've participated in a lot of the programming that we have at OSU and gotten involved in a lot of different student groups. Um, one of my kind of favorites has been my involvement um, in university housing and dining. That's how I met Brandy. I was a CRF back when we were community relations facilitators. Now we're diversity learning assistants. Um, So lots of changes happened since since I've been on campus. (laughs) And uh, I have been, I did my undergraduate in toxicology here and Um, I've been spending the last two years working on my doctorate of pharmacy, um, where I'm really interested in kind of combining all of this social justice learning that I have done with with health and healthcare. And so I'm really interested in looking at public health for groups um, like indigenous people who often have a lot of health disparities and who have higher incidence of certain um, disease states because of 
because of things that are, you know, social determinants of health as well. So really interested in, in that and kind of bringing together all my passions. Um, my thing that not a lot of people know about me, I play volleyball, which a lot of people do know about me. However, I am also obsessed with a volleyball anime called Haikyuu. Oh my goodness. Oh, it's so good, Brandy. It's so uh, good. You're the second person to bring this up. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm obsessed. Uh, me and my brother watched like like five to ten episodes a night of this volleyball anime. It is so fun. We have such a good time. We all have like our favorite characters, like who we are. Um, so I'm Kageyama. He's the setter. That's that's my my person. <laughs> I need to, I need you, you know Alex Maytush. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very big into this anime. <clears throat> so good. I, I will take your word for it. <laughs> Let it be that. Well, thank you both. Thank you both for um, wanting to spend time with me and, and talk a little bit about coalition building and activism, specifically student activism. Um, and I'm excited to get into this conversation with you all today. So my first question is, why do you believe activism exists and do you see yourselves as activists? Either one, whoever would like to start. Uh, well, for me, um, of course, well, not maybe not of course, but for me, activism exists because inequities exist. Um, and so to bring about change, whether that's political or environmental, social, or often all these things intertwined, um, you have activism. Uh, and in terms of how I see myself, um, I think now I would say yes, but if you'd asked me that question about 10 years ago, I would have said no. So it's been a journey for me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, that definition definitely really resonates with me. I think um, I like to say that ideally activism shouldn't have to exist. Right. If, if we do our activism, you know, if, we, if things are going well, we shouldn't need it, um, but unfortunately we do. Um, and I think that probably really similar, I wouldn't have said that I was an activist at the time that I was really starting to get into a lot of my activist activities. Um, since then, I've kind of been um, put in situations where I think critically about it and have been thinking about what activism is. Um, a lot of those you know, social justice classes that I took kind of forced me into that thinking space where I, I have realized that a lot of what I do is, is activism um, and a lot of the, the projects that I take on are activism. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, um, it's not something you fall into, which <clears throat> kind of leads to this next question I have. Is It's not something uh, accidental. It's definitely a deliberate, to me, I feel like it's a deliberate um, path. It's a deliberate journey. And so could you share a little bit more about how you both found your way into activism? Yeah, um, I think... I guess kind of tracing back where I started with activism, I really um, think back to my first year at Oregon State. You know, I, I had a great time. I had you know some friends that lived in my hall, but I didn't feel super connected to anything. I didn't feel like I had you know a, a purpose on campus or something that I was you know that was really my project, my my thing that I did. And I went searching, I think, that second year. Um, I was a resident assistant, and I was just really searching for something that made me feel like I was making a difference. Um, and I think that that's something that kind of tends to be a thread that runs through activism is really just feeling like you need to do something to make a difference in, in whatever your community is. And I think for me, that really started um, getting involved in special projects in housing. Mm. So... Um, you know, I just I had connections with my residents, but I was really seeing kind of this this space um, available in where we weren't doing any programming around um, diversity and justice, especially with the rich history that we have at OSU. And so I actually kind of my first activist project was really to um, bring it was called Justice Walks. And oh, I remember those. Yeah, I remember Justice yeah, Walks. I do. That was like my first that was my first project, you know, that I took on myself that I didn't just kind of stumble into. It was. It was like I'm gonna take this on and oh and God, really Ray, do was it. Was that the first time we met? I think that might have been the first time we met. Oh wow, that yeah. feels such a long time ago. And you did my um, my RA interview. Actually, was probably the first time we met. Right, but yeah. I do remember those justice walks. Yep, and then justice walks. Um, so yeah, we really just did a lot of. Um, that was my first kind of facilitating dialogue, where we would take a you know a location on campus and um, talk about the historical significance of that. Um, we went to the the main gate and talked about the black student walkout. 
um, just some of these really big events that have happened in OSU history. And then we would have a, a dialogue about some of those issues. Um, and that probably was kind of my first, my first foray into, into social justice education and activism. Were you ever connected with Nache before then or no? No, that was, I had not met, I didn't meet Nache until two years later when I was talking about Justice Walk. so interesting. Yeah. You both probably had that same idea. Mm-hmm. There's, yeah, you know, because mm-hmm. now I'm glad, I mean, I'm glad those both exist in the same plane. The reason that brought that memory back is because I was a resident director in Halsell Hall. Mm. And and when Raven was doing her her justice walks, yep. Halsell, um, Carrie Halsell, who's the namesake of Halsell Hall, was the first black woman um, student at Oregon State University. Mm-hmm. And so, and you know, <clears throat> there was never, a, I mean, university housing and dining did honor her in the way that they could, but the university didn't know too much about her. And mm-hmm. so that just struck me as, oh, man, I had forgotten all about that. Yeah. Yeah, we went to Halsell or one of our justice walks. Mm-hmm. We hung out in the in the foyer and looked at the plaque and talked about her. Yeah. Yeah, that's very cool. Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. What about you, Natalia? Um, so for me, I definitely now consider activism something deliberate that I do, but I didn't as first, as I mentioned about 10 or so years ago. So when or I started, about when I started this job, and especially when I got into the profession of archives, Um, is when things started to change. Because I think when I was younger, I had a much more narrow definition of activism. Um, A little bit about me, I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, which is a fairly liberal city, and I grew up fairly privileged. And um, as a comparison, my best friend was the president of the Young Democrats of the University of Arizona, um, and I consider her an activist because she canvassed for causes, tabled events, attended rallies, protests, uh, code calls, constituents, you named it, she did it. And I hated all of that. <laughs> she would invite me to do things, and I said no, um, it is just not my personality type to engage in those types of activities. And so while I supported and greatly admired her and activists, um, I I felt like I was activist adjacent, mm. but I was never actively participating enough to call myself an activist. Um, and so before I began my career as an archivist, I, I thought I wanted to be in a profession that I didn't have to talk to people as much. I could just use, I could just be with the materials. <laughs> but of course, archives are nothing without the people, then right. it's just stuff. Um, So I grew in my position as an archivist here, um, and as I read more in the professional literature on the role of archives and social justice causes, I realized that I do engage in a form of activism. So in my role as an archivist, I have the power to choose what stories and materials are added to the archive, to the historical record. That means that my role unavoidably engages in politics, and my work can potentially establish and reinforce power relationships within the historical narrative, which then impacts society. Um, So I can't remain neutral or passive because neutrality and objectivity in archives is an illusion. And Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. I have to strive to actively engage in social justice causes in the work that I'm doing um, and provide access to those materials and celebrate traditionally underrepresented stories. So not just document, but then educate and make people aware um, so sometimes I do still feel activist adjacent, but I, I definitely feel comfortable saying that I'm an archivist activist. <laughs> so I, I can say that. Yeah. Yeah, that's such a powerful thing to, to name and realize about not being neutral mm-hmm. in your work. Um, I've, it took me a while. I don't even know if I would fully ever call myself an activist. I will always call myself an educator. Um, and that is like another branch of activism within itself, only because um, to me, I agree with you of what you named, Natalia, about what activism looked like to me is the protest, um, the calls, the, the flyering, the talking to people, which after a while I can't handle either, and I'm in education. And so to be able to do that um, at such a high level uh definitely did not feel like something I was able to do or want to do, not able to do, want to do. 
I have no interest in it. But I do have interest in education, and I have interest in in um, showing other truths to people that they may have not realized. And I, I, it's, I, I always have that a hard time seeing that as a form of activism, but it is. I, I like to think that I educated activists. <laughs> That's kind of what I think I do. Um, Raven and, and folks of, of uh, the folks that she's worked with being some of those people. I think about the speak out specifically and knowing a number of those students were my students. And so maybe we educated each other. I can't say I educate them because that feels very adultist to say. Um, but we educated each other in, that, in those type of moments. And then they went out and did the thing that I knew I wasn't going to be able to do or want to do because I'm good. <laughs> I like being in the background 100% of the time. And, and then hopefully I document and preserve and share the work that those students do. Right, exactly. So it's all part of the so cycle. So it's all part of the cycle. Because mm -hmm. I think that, to me, that's a form of activism that doesn't get talked about a lot, is not always being in the forefront, not always being in the, the spotlight of a movement, but uh, still being the backbone or the foundation of it, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's Those are the people I like in movements, um, the ones that don't. I shouldn't say the ones that don't get talked about a lot. They should still get talked about. But um, I, uh, I'm i not interested in, I've never been interested in the spotlight moment. And some activists, I'm not going to name any names, Sean King, uh, do seem to want to do that more than others. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, it's hard for myself, it's hard for me to call myself an activist because of that. Mm -hmm. So I like the word educator a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned something, Natalia, about being, about, activism being cyclical. And I definitely feel that in Oregon State. And you probably have seen that with the archives of how cyclical student activism specifically is here. Yes. Um, I'm wondering if you could touch on how would you describe activism at Oregon State? Cyclical is a good description. Um, a couple of years ago, I worked with a student who wrote her aptly titled honors thesis, The Never-Ending Story, mm. an analysis of student activism at Oregon State University, uh, in which she examined the history of OSU student activism, specifically relating to campus racism. And her analysis was on the administrative response to student demands over the course of about a 50-year period. She picked um, some events in the in a late 60s event, 1990s, and then the 2015 speak out. So comparing, contrasting the differences and working through that paper and helping her find documents and then reading her thesis, it was, it was disheartening to see how the same issues continued to persist. And she pointed out these are the same demands that the students have been making over the course of decades. But it's, it was also encouraging to see the progress that, mm. that occurred um, and how the administrative response changed and got better and how, how things have progressed um, and seeing things, so much that the students have, have created um, in terms of, of what we have now, like the cultural resource centers, the land acknowledgement, the, the DPD, the Difference Power Discrimination Program, I could go on about all the things that students have done to ensure that we continue on the path. Yeah. So I I, I resonate with both of those pieces, and I, Raven, I want you to chime in here, um, mm -hmm. about the piece around what has been built up through student activism, and yet there's still some dishearten disheartening to it because it's still the same demands. Mm-hmm. Um, as someone who has done some activism on this campus, do you feel that, um, how would you describe student activism as a student activist? Yeah, um, I, you know, I, was, I was thinking like all these threads coming together uh, right now, but um, when you're talking about you know, an, an archivist activist, uh, I kept thinking about my work with the scab sheet. It's not really any secret anymore. Uh, people tend to know that I was involved with the scab sheet, so I'm not worried about saying it on this podcast for you all. Um, but my work with the scab sheet was directly tied to looking at old issues of the scab sheet, which was this, you know, this student led, student driven um, news in in the 60s, you know, following this, the, the black student walkout and all of these different things that weren't being reported on. 
uh, through the school news sources and, and students were upset. And I started, you know, restarted, revamped the scab sheet, uh, revived the scab sheet with fellow students from looking at that in the archives. And on one hand, it's so cool that we had access to, to be able to have those things. On the other, you know, why do we, you know, are we still fighting with, you know, the administration to get our voices heard? Why do we still need the scab sheet? Um, and I think that one of the things that can be continually frustrating, especially as a student who has been here now long enough that um, the students that I was here with as a freshman are, are not here anymore. Um, and being here for graduate school, I've kind of seen a few cycles of students come in and out and we're asking, yeah, we are, we're asking for the same things. Um, and the, the, I guess the downfall of a four-year institution is that students often don't stick around long enough to see um, the fruits of their labors because they finish and they move on to the next point in their careers and the next thing. Um, and I think that a lot of the time it takes so long to get ramped up, right? Mm -hmm. It takes so long to feel like you're an activist. It takes so long to feel like you can do that work that by the time you're in it and confident, you're graduating that year. Yeah. Um, and so I think for me, the way that I'm trying to shape my activism now as a student who will be leaving soon um, is to really focus on kind of mentorship and how do you how do you teach um, you know young energetic students on this campus students of color um, who who might not think that they have a voice and that might not think that they can share that voice how do you get them sharing that earlier you know and feeling like they do have those spaces to create things like the speak out like the scab sheet um, and make those spaces on campus and I think that so for me I'm, I'm really trying to shape activism into you know we've we talked about archivist activism educator activism but really that that mentorship piece mm -hmm. along with that education I think is huge yeah I think you and I have had the conversation I know I've had this conversation with other student activists about institutional memory mm -hmm. and what um what goes along with that Natalia is really part of that institutional memory piece um, with the archives. And, you know, we have students who have student groups who try to do that as well. But it's it's very difficult when you're also, which makes sense, you're also graduating. Mm -hmm. um, you're doing, you're finishing up what you came here to do. You didn't actually come here to act to be protesting university on X, Y, and Z, or, or, you know, bring this up to the university for the umpteenth time. You actually came here to get your degree. Um, and learn some some great uh, knowledge and skills and uh, growth along the way. And while I will name that I think activism is a huge part of growth for anybody, it's not, like I said earlier, it's not something you accidentally wander into, mm -hmm. right? It's not going to be part of their, your, um, your degree. No. You can't put that on any resume. No, they, they don't necessarily like to see it <laughs> on your resume so much in my field. <laughs> no, they do not. <laughs> And in most fields, to yeah. be perfectly honest with you, I don't, I can't think of one, maybe ethnic studies, maybe, mm -hmm. but there's not too, there, there aren't too many fields uh, in any part of higher education in the United States where they're really excited about activism as being part of your extracurricular activities. And so knowing that, it's not to say like, what are we doing so students won't be activists? It's what are we doing so if we do have student activists or when we do have student activists, they're not asking the same questions over and over again that we thought we solved mm -hmm. 5, 11, 60 years ago. Yeah. That could be a whole new tangent for another a day. A whole new <laughs> podcast right there. Right? We'll just put that down. We have a list now. We have scrapbooking, scrapbooking. with Natalia. <laughs> and we have how to, how to be a student activist and get, your, and get things done. Um, I was about to cuss on this podcast. That would have been the end of this one. Um, so <laughs> let me uh, let me ask this question. And we're kind of switching to coalition building a little bit. Because um, we named about uh, the definition of student activists is definitely, or excuse me, not student activism, activism in general is to really uh, end the injustices that we see, um, either students or communities facing but I feel like the second is to create a coalition of like-minded people. Um, do you agree with that point? Do you feel that that coalition building is happening at, at Oregon State? Um, what could uh, activists be doing to um, better get 
Well, what's the word I'm looking for? What could activists be doing to um, really build coalitions at the university? Well, I, in terms of coalition building, I think Raven touched on a few really important points about it, how challenging it can be to do that on a university campus uh, with the students, um, but also sometimes with, with faculty and staff, we also leave and, and take on other jobs um, because it is time sensitive, um, but it, so sometimes it feels more like coalition building is planting the seeds and you you have faith that that it will continue mm -hmm. um, and that people will take on the cause I think it it is happening on campus there there are lots of smaller groups and over the years I've seen how groups are starting to to connect so you can have lots of different identities but there's a lot of focus on intersectionality and I see it more with the cultural resource centers working together with different groups and um, sharing different celebrations and histories so that it's a, a year-round continuous effort and it doesn't fall on just one or two groups. So, because that can lead to, to burnout right. and and then loss of memory. So the, I think coalition building is happening. It can always be better. I love Raven's idea. The mentorship piece mm -hmm. is huge. Um, the institutional memory, I'm working on it, but we, we don't have everything in the archives. Um, lots of people for different reasons maybe don't want to share their stories. Um, mm -hmm. And so we have what we can make accessible, but then people don't always know that archives exist. So getting people in and seeing what we have. Um, so it's it's there, but I think it is, it is a challenge, but it's a worthwhile challenge. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm seeing a lot more of it um, it feels like there's a lot of students on campus right now that are naming that there's just work being duplicated across campus by all of these disparate groups. Um, it's something that you know we're we're hearing come up a lot right now in the student fee committee um, mm -hmm. at ASOSU working on things. Um, we're just really students are frustrated because we we pay all of this money to the institution and and to all these groups to have this work being done, and it seems like there's you know. I mean, how many different Latinx student groups are there on this campus that are all trying to pull for the same resources? And, you know, we, we, we were facing this in um, SOCNIS, in the Society for the Advancement of Chicanos and Native Americans in Science, that, um, you know, we are trying to put on this big Mi Familia weekend and, and bring parents and families to campus for this really big all-campus event. So is Juntos. So mm -hmm. is Mecha. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so is the Four Cs. And all of these groups are trying to do the same type of programming. And it wasn't until last year that we put them all together and said, let's all pool our resources. And we had the biggest event that we've had in the nine or so years that the event has existed. And so I think there's a big push for it from students right now to bring all of these groups that have been doing this kind of work and this activism together. Um, so building even coalitions of coalitions, because you know each of those students groups is a is a coalition, right? Um, and I think that I think that that needs to continue, and I think that that we need um, really we need our mentors and our and our educators and our faculty and staff to help us keep pushing for that um, and help build that infrastructure so that there are spaces for us to gather all of those different groups across campus who are doing the same and similar work. Yeah, that. Oof, I did not know that one. Yeah, yeah. that that's that's fantastic, and that it took so long to get to that point, right? I think the thing about coalition building that um, always strikes me is that it's not so much of. Um, I think everyone understands that the somewhat needs the needs are somewhat the same. There's some similarities. Is that there also are going to be some differences, and those differences can at times be stark. Mm -hmm. They could be very different. You could be opposite of, of uh, on, on, a, on an issue and still be in a coalition with each other. And that is super duper hard right now in cancel culture and woke culture, which um, is the last question I have around, around this topic, around coalition building, because that... Um, those are... I, I call them offsprings of activism. I really do. Um, mm -hmm. I can't remember, Raven, if you were, 
I feel like you were in the CRF group when we talked about slacktivism. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. When we talked about activism online, where mm-hmm. you're just sending out a tweet, or yes. you're retweeting, or you're putting out this Facebook post, or you uh, that of an article that you hadn't read, but you want to see it. There's probably a Russian <laughs> bot anyway at this point, which we didn't know anything about during that time. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, not um, the one thing I will say about activism is that you absolutely have to invest and know the information before um, disseminating it. Uh, And woke culture and cancel culture do not do that. And we are now in that mind frame, I would say. Mm -hmm. And so when I think of coalitions and I think about the culture that we're in, I feel like it's a, um, those are butting heads. Do you think, and that's just me, I, I, maybe you think they're helping, and I want to know that. Do you feel like woke culture and cancel culture, maybe they're helping in some ways? Are they helping activist movements? Or are they harming activist movements or both? Ooh, tough question. Um, I think for me it's really easy to see the, the harm, for sure. Um, I think that one of the hardest things about activism is starting. Is to is to get yourself put yourself out there and decide to care about something enough that you're going to work on it and risk potentially being wrong um, mm. and and that's hard that's a vulnerability that it takes that you you know you might be wrong you might do the wrong thing um, and cancel culture really makes that hard it makes it hard to be okay with being wrong because you might be okay with being wrong but maybe no one else is and that might really limit your ability to continue with that work. Um, and so I think I think for me, and we, when we have spaces where it's not okay to be wrong, when it's not okay to not know, it really limits the kind of work that you can do because it's still an echo tam- chamber. It's just an echo chamber of people who, who want to be woke. I've participated in a group that I'm, I'm still in, Brandy, you're still in, and Raven, I don't know if you've, if you've gone, um, the, the coalition on campus, uh, um, the coalition for supporting student mm-hmm. activism um, and free speech. And mm-hmm. in that coalition, I remember some of our first meetings, I'm very product oriented and I wanted to get started. What right. are we going to do? What are we going to do? And yeah. I remember yeah. the conversations actually began with, who are we? Mm-hmm. What are our thoughts um, about these issues? And the first term was really just getting to know each other, mm-hmm. what we thought. Um, because I think woke culture and cancel culture can be helpful um, it, in terms of you know being woke, um, being conscious of oppression and injustice. And I think to be an effective activist, you do need to be aware of and educated on the issues, the histories, the facts, as you said, Brandy. Um, So that I would see that as helpful for activist movements and coalition building, that you have that information. Um, But I read a definition online saying that being woke was a it was a pretentious way about showing how much you care about a social issue, mm. which will then, that would be harmful, <laughs> if, you're, be harmful. if you're causing judgment. And as right. Raven said, if, if you can't be wrong, if you can't just be incorrect right. about something and learn from it. Um, same with calling out or canceling. It's, it's about accountability, especially right. understanding that your intentions and your impact don't always align. So again, this can be a good thing. Um, so the ones doing the calling out, have their voices heard, and the ones being called out can then have the opportunity to apologize and do better. But if a call out or a, you know, the cancellation of someone leads to an argument where someone simply says, it's my First Amendment right to say whatever I can, whatever mm-hmm. I want, then mm-hmm. that's not helpful. Um, I think that both being woke and calling people out, it's a journey about being better, and it's not that you just are. Right. Um, it's, it's a journey. And for me, I, I also, it's hard because I'm not a social media person at all. And I know that this happens more on social media, but I, I have four steps on my office wall when you're called out to acknowledge, apologize, thank, and take responsibility and offer amends. And I think that that can be so much easier in person yeah. and yes, in an online for sure. format I can't even imagine. I don't even comment on YouTube videos. I'm not a social media person. <laughs> So to have those types of high-level 
emotional conversations via Twitter, via Facebook, any form of, of social media, I think can be really challenging. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I gave myself, I, I don't do this anymore, but anytime I had to have a quote unquote educational conversation with someone on Facebook, I give myself an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that hour, wherever we were, it just happened to be where we were. Mm-hmm. And I would thank them for that conversation and go about my day because that would suck up my entire day if mm-hmm. I allow it. But I, you know, I hear the thought about being wrong. And just to think about, I mean, for the three of us to think about what it feels like, what does your body do when you're, when you are, know you're wrong about something or um, that you might be wrong about something, right? Mm-hmm. At least for me, I'm, I'm like, no, I'm not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, how, yeah. that's the first thought I think about is absolutely not. Mm-hmm. I'm not wrong. Like the thing that came to my mind as I was listening to you all and thinking about my own life was when I was in graduate school at UMass, I had to do uh, these um, uh, workshops. So I did a workshop on, on uh, heteronormativity. And so we had students who were taking these workshops. And this one student, her name was Rachel. This is why I remember this girl's name. It's because she, she knew more than me. And the way she, she uh, portrayed that was in a very much, uh, I know more than you elitist type way. But she did. She actually knew more about um, some pronouns. She knew more about the new the new um, alphabets that we were using in LGBTQ land um, that I and I did not. And I had to swallow my pride and be like, you know what? I did not know that. And we brought a panel in for the second day. It was a two day workshop. And that pretty much validated her, her, you know, and I was like, dang it, Rachel you know what, I, I need to I need to do better. And so I didn't say anything off-putting, but I do remember thinking in my head and saying to my co-facilitator how much I could not stand that girl. But by the end of it, we did affirmations, and I thanked her because if it wasn't for her naming those pieces, I wouldn't have known them. I wish she would have done it a different way, yes, but I still would ha- have known those things. It's really hard to be wrong about something you're so passionate about. Mm-hmm. It really is. Yeah. And you can get over it. <laughs> you mm-hmm. can get over it because now you know those things and you can educate others in a way that you would probably rather have been educated than how you learned about it. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I just, I think woke culture and cancel culture um, want to be helpful, mm-hmm. but are not developed enough to do so. Yeah. Well, and I mean, social justice education is hard. Yeah. That's why we go to school to learn how to do it. That's exactly. why, you know, we, we train for it. And I think um, really cancel culture is to me screams of wanting, wanting to be able to have that social justice education piece, wanting to be able to teach people how to do better, wanting to be able to to show everyone ways to be better. And I think that, um, you know, we, we talk a lot in um, one of the new things that was introduced to me by another student. uh uh, Sienna, actually, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, Sienna introduced to our our student fee committee is really more of a culture of calling in and really trying to invite people to be in the space and sit with kind of the discomfort of of maybe being wrong mm-hmm. and and be in a learning space and a learning frame of mind. And that's kind of really helped me reframe cancel culture in a way that I think is more helpful for me. Um, so when, when I'm in spaces, I try to do calling in instead of calling out. Very very cool. I love yeah. that. I love it, too. Well, we have a few more minutes left, and I know we had a couple other questions, but I think we've answered most of them. So I'm going to move us on to our fun little lightning round, which I'm excited about. Yeah. I don't know if they're going to be excited about. So um, I found out, only because I think I knew this because, um, full disclosure, I I do know Natalia and Raven pretty well, at least. (laughs) So we're, we're all friends here. And I do know that they have an affinity for musicals. I'm going to lift my paper up because I think Rave is trying to look at it. So this lightning round, I do have two questions, and then it's like an either-or of these different types of musicals, right? And so you got to pick one. Okay. There's no, like, maybe, mm, maybe both, no. But. One. <laughs> so my first question, when before we get into those lightning round questions, Nate, what's a musical or, or play you watch when you're in your feels, whatever your feels are, whether it's like sad or you're like angry, whatever the feels sound describe, whatever you want to describe that as. Like, what is that musical for you? 
like for me, that musical is Oklahoma because <laughs> that's nice. where I'm from. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Ooh. I think um, for me, probably my feels musical. Um, I guess I have to pick a feel because I have like a musical for each feel. So I'll go with um, I'll go with like when I when I'm feeling really like awesome, like I just like nailed that and I knocked it out of the park and I feel great um, is Wicked. Mm. Really like to belt Wicked when I'm feeling just like I need to celebrate and be super belty and awesome and loud. Cool. All right. Natalia. Oh, goodness. I love seeing musicals in person, but I don't necessarily purchase the soundtracks afterwards That's and fair. listen to them. Um, I don't know if they count as musicals, but you... I said or play. Beforehand, you mentioned that um, Disney might be on the menu. It's oh, very yeah. problematic, I'm aware. Um, but there are some early Disney classics that are... Just when I want the feels of something comforting mm-hmm. and fun, um, I just have it on my tiny TV. Um, any of the Disney princesses, nice. I, will, nice. I will put those on. I like it. Mm-hmm. All righty, here we go. I said I'm going to ask one question, so now I'm going to get into the lightning round. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> All right. Wicked or The Wiz? Oh. <laughs> I didn't think of being this hard. Ask that one right after I said well, Wicked was my feels musical. Ah, oh, but I really love the Wiz. I'm gonna have to go. I'm gonna have to go with Wicked. I gotta go with Wicked. So I do love musicals, but I cannot believe I'm saying this. I haven't seen either of those in person. Okay. Um, I know of both, but I I haven't actually seen either, which is kind of ridiculous. Wicked was huge when I was in college, and I just never went. And well, then I've never seen it either. But I know of it only because I read the book. Mm-hmm. Only yeah. and I only put those two together because they're about the wizard. Oh, it's about the wizard. Yes. <laughs> so we're gonna say Natalia says neither. <laughs> okay. So if you haven't seen them, I'm gonna say just whichever one you feel like you would you would see. Okay. Yeah. How about that? Okay. Evita or Annie. These are really tripping oh, up Raven. Oh, these I are really it. getting me. I'm making a lot of faces right now. You That's all can't so see great. my faces, but I'm making a lot of faces. Um, I'm going to go with Annie because it's just, it's very comforting. My dad used to sing Annie. Oh, I can't so even cute. imagine my dad singing all the time, but he he used to sing Annie with us. That's so cool. I would go with Evita. Ooh. I love the historical context to it. I love the costumes. The costumes are beautiful. When I saw it, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. Rent or Hamilton? Hamilton, all the way, <laughs> all the Hamilton. I'm not wearing. I was wearing my Hamilton shirt yesterday. I took it off for this podcast. Um, but yeah, no, uh, Hamilton for sure. I know. I might know every word of the Hamilton oh soundtrack. I would have to say Hamilton. I mentioned earlier that I don't listen to soundtracks, but a friend of mine gave me that soundtrack, yeah. and I did listen to that one on repeat. So yes. so That's solid. Which is really sad for Rent, because I also really love it. I was rent. like, dang, nobody picked Rent. Poor, poor Rent. Poor Rent. Bad uh, matchup. <laughs> got, got placed against the first seed team. It's not fair. <laughs> Maybe so. I guess so. My bad. Aladdin or Frozen? Oh, this is also really hard. I, um, I really love Frozen. So, um, spoiler, I really love Adina Menzel, which is why I love Wicked so much and also love Frozen so much. But Aladdin was my favorite as a kid. Like, I loved Jasmine. I felt like I was Jasmine. Uh, she had a tiger. She had and a she tiger. Did have a tiger. <laughs> she was, like, trapped in, like, this weird, tiny... I was trapped in a small town, so she wasn't trapped in a tiny town. She was trapped in a huge palace, which is way different, I guess. But I'm going to have to go with Aladdin. I really... I really love Aladdin, but I also really loved in Frozen how the true love that saved them was the love between sisters, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. growing up on the classic Disney princesses where it was love of man, um, I think Frozen for me was like, oh, what little kids are seeing today is so awesome right? that they're it getting is, that message. Dope. So I do like Frozen. And they're hearing it from Adina Menzel. So yeah. there you go. <laughs> 
I love this. I love this. <laughs> uh, the Lion King or the Color Purple? There is a the Color Purple musical. I'm going to have to go with the color purple because I w- just recently found out that there was a color purple musical um, when they they did um, they did it in Portland at the armory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I listened to a little bit of it and I it's just, it's so new and shiny right now. I'm like really into it. Nice. Yeah. Well, I have not seen the color purple musical, but I saw the Lion King, the musical, and I saw it when I was f- younger and the just the the costumes, the pieces, and having the elephant come down the aisle. It was a really intense that experience. It was, so the being in the presence of, of that musical. For, I will for, say, was the really costumes cool. were so cool. I loved going to that show. It was really neat. Dreamgirls or Jersey Boys? I'm going to go with Dreamgirls. Same. Dreamgirls. Yeah, I haven't even seen Jersey Boys. So. <laughs> <laughs> Cinderella or Beauty and the Beast? Ooh, uh, Beauty and the Beast, because I am a bookworm like Belle. Yeah, yeah. you're definitely yeah. a Belle. I think both of you are Belles. <laughs> yes, yes. If she had not become a princess, I think she would have become a librarian or archivist. She would sure. have. So. She would have been awesome at it. Oh, you know that castle has a giant library. Like, yes. that's a huge selling point for me in the movie. <laughs> that is what turned the tide on her love for the Beast. Oh, yeah, I'll marry the Beast for a library, I guess. Oh, man, that can be so cynical right now. I'm just going to let that go. Hairspray or Rocky Horror Picture Show? I'm making more faces. This is another hard one for me. Um, I'm going to go with Rocky Horror Picture Show. I just have so many super great Rocky Horror Picture Show memories that I got to go with. Got to go with Rocky Horror. So actually, the first time I went to Rocky Horror was with Brandy. Nice. And again, me not being an outgoing person, I was like, this is, I'm going, I'm going and I'm going to enjoy this and I'm going to scrapbook it, but I am not fully participating. So I would have to go with hairspray. Um, But I did love the experience. Oh my gosh. It was so great watching it with her. I I thoroughly enjoyed watching it with you. Just because I knew it was your first time. I love it. And I I was like, I wonder how Natalia's going to feel about this. First timers are really fun on that one. Uh, yes, yeah. I, I'm I knew enough of it. Yeah. I'd seen the movie. I'd heard my friends all went. They dressed up, so they I knew enough. And all that stuff. You know, they're doing uh, a shadow cast for. It. So they do it here at the Majestic uh, in February for these last couple. If you're interested, there um, auditions. They had auditions last night and tonight. Ooh. So okay. Spoiler alert: um, Raven also sings. I do. So I do. That's why I'm saying this on this podcast. So. She's can trying to hold me accountable exactly. for going to do things that involve singing. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> a few more. Uh, the Sound of Music or Fiddler on the Roof? Ooh. Fiddler on the Roof for me. Um, I actually, uh, this was not my, it was one of my contenders for my little known facts, but I uh, learned to play fiddle when I was seven. And, really? Yeah. And I really liked playing the opening Fiddler on the Roof, the like, da 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 I was oh all Oh my gosh, I that. could totally see you doing that. Oh yeah. That. <laughs> yep. It's all me. I do like Sound of Music, but I remember when I first saw Fiddler on the Roof and I realized how that that music had really permeated the culture that I recognized mm. all the music and the songs without realizing it. Um, it's just, it's a really awesome one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, last, last two sets. Okay. Mulan or Princess and the Frog? Uh, I'm gonna have to go with Mulan. Just really gotta make a man out of you. I just <laughs> love that song. It really gets me pumped. I I've definitely seen Mulan more, and they're both so cute. Um, but I think I also like Mulan. If I had to sit down and watch one, I love them both. Solid. But Princess and the Frog for me, only because the princess can actually sing in that one. It's true. I'm just saying. It's true. The song you just picked, Mulan don't sing a single note (laughs) in that song. Nope. Just saying. That's fair. Now, maybe we need Shang, Shang Lee, Lee Shang the musical. Right. Then I'm all about that. (laughs) And the last one, of course, the two biggest musicals of all time, Les Miserables 
or Phantom of the Opera. Why wouldn't I put those against each other? Of course you would put those against each other. Those are also the two that I grew up singing. Like, that's how I learned to sing, was Phantom of the Opera and Les Mis. I'm going to go with Les Mis. Um, I'm really in love with Angelos, who was the revolutionary character. I don't know if they ever actually say his name a single time in Les Mis, uh, but he's the like revolutionary guy who who gets everybody all into the the activism and gets all the the rich students to be activists. So uh, and he's my favorite. So we'll go with Lemis. I do love the music of Phantom. That's one where I would listen to the music on its own mm-hmm. more, but the story of Lemis is and the music yeah. together. She said you can't choose both. I know. So I would choose Lemis. Yeah, <laughs> I would choose Lemis. <laughs> We're calling in. We're calling in. Yes. You can't choose both. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, I have to make a confession. I haven't seen either one of those. Oh. Mm-mm. Oh. I know. All right. We need to call the Majestic and tell them <laughs> to get on some. We got some musical theater to get on. Well, I mean, the musicals that they're uh, showing for next year's season include Legally, Legally Blonde, Blonde and oh, Elf. Yeah. Oh, very Elf. Yeah. Okay. Says the person who's on the play review committee. So I am now becoming a theater person. Anyways, we could ramble on for another 20 minutes, but you don't want to hear that. But what I do want to say is thank you to Raven and to Natalia so much for for coming on the podcast and being amazing activists, archivists, activists, people in in all sorts of wonderful ways. Um, I just appreciate you both as knowing you as personal and professional folks. So thank you very much. And yeah, yeah, I guess that's about it, y'all. So we will be back in a few more days and you'll get to hear my lovely voice again. Until then, enjoy yourselves. Have a good December day. Okay, bye. Bye. Bye.